Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. This week is part three of our Christopher Nolan trilogy. We're looking at his entire career and this week we have another guest. So joining me, Alan, and Sol over there. Say hello, Sol. Hello. Joining us this week is Gareth. Hello. Gareth, who has been with us a few times before and uh, you've been drafted in here for the uh, for the third installment. So before we get into the this week's films, which are Dark Knight Rises, uh, Interstellar, and Dunkirk, the last three films uh, as of date of Christopher Nolan, uh, do you want to give us a quick quick rundown of how are your feelings, Christopher Nolan, generally, uh, previous films, if you which ones you've seen? Well, no, I am a fan. Of, I am a fan of Christopher Nolan. Well, okay, so I think this is something that me and Sol are going to argue about over the next however long we're talking. I'm not a massive fan of superhero films as a genre. And although I totally acknowledge that the Nolan Batman films are very different in tone to other superhero films, it's still, I I still have a bit of a blind spot with them. And I, I, Mm. you know, I can't get past the fact that it's just someone in a silly outfit doing a silly voice. (laughs) Well, we, we might, we might share more. Um, well, I, I know that you guys have already covered some earlier Christopher Nolan films, and I haven't heard those conversations yet as we're recording, so I'm not sure how you uh, feel about the earlier Batman films, but I know we're going to talk about The Dark Knight Rises today. I mean, is it worth us doing a quick recap if anyone has jumped straight ahead to the third part of what we're doing here, or indeed just wants a little recap uh, of the last two weeks? I would say that Alan and I are both on the whole, pretty positive when it comes to Christopher Nolan. I think we both admire the technical mastery that goes into, I suppose, his writing more than anything. Mm, and obviously, that is, is impeccable. Yeah, and that is backed up from a you know filmmaking point of view. I think I think what we really were getting at last week is a, a holistic approach to filmmaking. So everything ties in. You know, the way he chooses to shoot something adds to the story the the little bits and pieces he'll drop in earlier on which will pay off later yes. uh, like he's he's looking at the film as a whole rather than visual script acting as separate entities it's all coming together which is how it should be i think but you know on so often isn't <laughs> well i don't want to i don't want to jump ahead too much but i think that's something i noticed on watching a couple of these films for the second or third time, having watched them once before, you know, years ago, that I enjoyed them more because exactly because of that, Alan, because of that structure and and just seeing things being gently set up. I could could see the craft. I could see what was happening behind the scenes, so to speak. I don't want to give anything massively away, but all three of these films this week, uh, for the first time when it comes to Christopher Nolan, are films I've not watched since I saw them in the cinema when they came out. So I was re-watching all of them as well. I had the opposite uh, experience to you, whereby I think oh, I came away liking each one of them a little bit less. Mm. But uh, we'll we'll get into what that means exactly in more detail. Uh, Gareth, just to explain something to you, because these episodes aren't out yet, so of course you won't have heard. Um, one of my, my famous lists has been getting a bit of attention the last couple of weeks. I, I have a list where... Has it been getting a, lot, a bit of attention from anybody except you, Sol? <laughs> hey, Al- Alan was very interested yeah. in uh, hearing Sidney Lumet. It was a new was concept, the though. It was a new, it yeah. was a new thing. Go on. <laughs> I, I have a list that I keep of my favourite directors, but it is I essentially put all of their films on there and then put an average rating out of 10 based on the ratings I've given out of 10, rank them that way. 
minimum of three films that I've seen to qualify. And Christopher Nolan, with all of this rewatching and reevaluating, has climbed his way to number three on the list so far. <laughs> the drama. Oh, I was, on the ed- I was on the edge of my seat there, Sol. He wasn't yeah. even in the top ten when we started. I mean, it's pretty. Big. He was. Yeah, he wasn't. But now, now he is number three, just behind Charlie Chaplin and Sidney Lumet. Well, look, before we get into the detail of these films one by one, I think it's a really interesting question about the whole work of Nolan. And these three films sum it up because Dunkirk and Interstellar, I, I love both of those films. And The Dark Knight Rises, in contrast, is so much worse. Like the, the, <laughs> the leap, it, for me, in, in my enjoyment of the films, it, it's, it's almost like they weren't made by someone of the same species, never mind the same director. Well, we, we mentioned we mentioned last week that, you know, Nolan does have this one for them, one for me approach. He's he makes this huge blockbuster film that makes loads yeah. of money. And then the, and then they go, you're our boy. What? Here's 200 million. Make whatever you want. Yeah. And he goes away and makes something. Good. And so that's how you, you get in films. Like that's how you get into we talked about last yeah. week and then Interstellar this week that just there's no obvious way how to pitch that film to sell it. Yeah, w- without being able to go, look, I'm Christopher Nolan. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're going to give us. I, I understand right? that, and but that's great. I really, I, I love that that him as an artistic entity is going. Yeah, fair enough. Look, I've earned you some money. Now do one for me, and yeah. and he's producing these very interesting original uh, sci-fi concepts uh, that yeah, just probably wouldn't get past the drawing board otherwise. Oh, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth. I, I would if I had to watch these three films again, and you told me you can watch all of them or none of them, I would sit through The Dark Knight Rises again to watch the other two. It's worth it. <laughs> I think I think to move into The Dark Knight Rises, we're seeing that one for you, one for me thing, you know, as blatantly as we ever have done. This was the time where he had to, you know, he, he sold his soul to the devil by agreeing to make this third film he didn't want to do. And it was time to pay up. And, you know, it, it's this film that just... I guess he made as good on it as he could, blatantly not being remotely interested in in what he was doing. And, um, you know, we've covered the film before on this podcast in the very early days. I'll I'll make no bones about it. I hate The Dark Knight Rises. I often say... (laughs) I often so say, pleased. in fact, when I was convincing my my girlfriend to you know rewatch a lot of these with me, I often say, you know, Christopher Nolan's never made a bad film, and then I always remember and have to qualify, oh, except The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I think it is the one blemish on his otherwise stellar career, and <laughs> I don't really know what happened other than he had deadlines and a lack of interest and didn't have a passion to make it. Like I say, I watched it once in a cinema back in 2012 with Alan, in fact, mm. and I kind of was quite—I was quite excited to revisit it. I thought maybe with no hype, lower lower expectations, maybe I'll go in and come away thinking, "No, you know what? That was all right." No, I, I came away like thinking less of it <laughs> yeah. because I was ready to hate it this time. The first time I was convinced it was going to be great because you know it's Christopher Nolan. He's never made exactly. a foot wrong. He, he he's knows what he's doing. They've blown up a real airplane for real. Oh my god, can you believe it? The Dark Knight Rises is a piece of shit. And, <laughs> and if I if I'm upsetting anyone by being too negative, because we get a lot of flack on this show for being too too negative, <laughs> Gareth. I don't know if you know that. It's, it's largely. Yep. Uh, 
it is, to be fair, largely people who listen to all the James Bond episodes and then feel like they <laughs> are in a fair position to have a comment about the show as a whole, which obviously... Well, isn't they really... won't be listening to this. They'll be on Calvin's yeah. YouTube page. But, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the James Bond people might listen to the Christopher Nolan episodes. So if you are one of those people, you know, go and listen to the last two weeks. I've been incredibly positive about Christopher Nolan. Yeah, Gareth, and you I've should been... know, Sol- Sol's been throwing 10 out of 10s around all over the place. Wow. Okay. I bumped I bumped well, we'll, the prestige up to a 10. We'll see about that. I'm really relieved because I watched this film. I went to see this at the cinema with my wife and I I giggled all the way through it. I found it laughable. <laughs> and I thought I've got to watch this again, but it's a Christopher Nolan film, Gareth. Come on, pull yourself together. It's so like I've got to give it a chance. You know, don't laugh at the silly voices. You know, don't <laughs> laugh at the ridiculous punching someone's spine back in. And I gave it a chance and it was rubbish. <laughs> it is, and I think it's really upsetting because the the fact that this is number seventy on on IMDb's top two fifty of all time, the fact that like the Batman fat, fanboys love it and lap it up, completely invalidates the credibility that the Dark Knight received. It's such mm. a shame because it, you, you, that was a legitimately fantastic piece of work, and even if you don't like the genre and think it's too silly, I'm sure you can appreciate that for what it is. It was, you yeah. know, remarkably yeah. well made and everything. But the fact that this film gets a similar degree of acclaim is is just upsetting because it's it's terrible on mm. every level. And I mean, let, let's let's address the voice let's now do because it. there's there's bigger <laughs> problems with this film and you know, it, it, that's something worth getting into. Um do you guys know I, I as a master of impressions, I actually do a phenomenal Bane impression. <laughs> is it going to be very I... painful? <laughs> it is it is unfortunately visual, much like my Robert De Niro, so it, it can't be done on this podcast. <laughs> I will I will send you a photograph of me doing the impression now on the, on the little chat we had going before we start recording. Okay, we'll judge accordingly. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! That's perfect! <laughs> you know, that's, that's actually just as good. <laughs> um, I, I suppose we'll post this on our social media but uh, there you go instant Bane it's great yeah, I, like it. I, I used to think like Bane's voice what were they thinking but then I, I watched Inception again and actually paid attention to Tom Hardy and I realised like oh that is that's just how he talks <laughs> he's actually just got quite a quite a well spoken British way of being and then when he's sort of chewing the scenery a bit, darling, and does all this, it just sort of becomes Bane when you add a little... Like, over what a lovely, lovely voice. <laughs> I have a theory on this. My theory is that Tom Hardy is undirectable. I think this, <laughs> I think his, his performance in this film is... Uh, okay, here's the line. When, it, when they're at the football match and he says, let the games begin. Now... <laughs> Nobody says that. Everybody puts the emphasis on games, not on begin. And he's read that on the script, let the games begin. And he thought, I'm going to do something a bit different with this. And that is everything that's wrong with Tom Hardy. Let the games begin. Can I elaborate on that? I I spoke about this last week, really, when we were drilling into Heath Ledger's performance. I think Heath Ledger does or did, as, as the Joker, some remarkable stuff, just with his choices. His choices mm. of delivery were so out of left field. But in a way that you don't really register it, I bet you Tom Hardy was sat watching 
Heath Ledger's Joker yeah. every night. I'm going to bring my own like, thing to Keeping this. himself, yeah, w- w- not unable to sleep, thinking, how am I going to do it? Analyzing the performance, going, oh, he's done some really weird delivery. I'm going to do some weird delivery that doesn't make any sense. And the result <laughs> well, I think is, if you, I, I don't think he's done anything we get Bane. for years. If you, like, I don't know if you watch Peaky Blinders. Every single scene he's in that, I piss myself laughing. T- Taboo, his TV show Taboo, is hilarious. Do you remember Legend? So Legend's a really good example. He plays Reggie Cray really well. It's a really well-acted uh, role, which is even more <laughs> infuriating because it shows he can do it. He's just being difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and he's per- portraying Red- Ronnie Cray like a cartoon villain. He's basically been playing Charles Bronson for 20 years, and it's time someone called him on. <laughs> well, I mean, I must say, you know, I-, I watched Bronson, and I thought his performance was incredible in it. But I see that's funny because I when I watched Bronson, you know, I'd heard all the hype. I finally watched Bronson, and I just thought... That's incredibly easy to play. It's extremely one note. Well, the thing with, like, I've got a bit of a dislike for Tom Hardy. And I actually, when it comes down to it, I don't think he's a bad actor or anything. It's just because he seems to get a lot of praise and people talk about him like he's the fucking greatest thing yes. since Marlon yeah. Brando. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, he's trying to be Marlon Brando. I was just fucking mumbling all the time. Like, <laughs> actually, it's difficult. He brings his dog on set. Fuck off with your dog, <laughs> dickhead. This is a professional environment. <laughs> I think I think he's just overrated, but I do like Tom yeah. Hardy, I must say, and I do actually think he's a very good actor. Well, just over and above that, I find Bane uh, to be a shit character, but sp- the, a specific problem with it is Tom Hardy... If you're going to have a guy with a mask on, find someone who can do stuff with their eyes. Tom Hardy's eyes never move during this film. <laughs> to the point where I, it, it, it could be deliberate. Like, yeah, it's yeah, deliberately it like, Blanchett. I want it to be like a mannequin face. He gives nothing away. The voice is obviously dubbed in afterwards. So there's no sense of kind of reality or spontaneity there. It, mm. And it just feels like, why not just hire a stuntman to do that? Do a... Darth Vader on it, right? Why not just get him someone to do the voice and then get someone who can do a decent voice instead of a... Um, Let's talk about the voice because we haven't really touched on the voice. The voice, it, it, it's... I mean, it genuinely, I I almost had to leave the cinema because I was laughing on, like <laughs> laughing into my T-shirt. <laughs> it just makes... Every, th- every single word he said made me laugh. It, it, I, I don't get it. I don't get what they're trying to go with there. Like a muffled voice because he's got a mask on would have been okay. But this, this kind of disembodied as if he's got speakers all around us type I don't I, I don't know what they were going for but it was absurd I am the League of Shadows I am here to fulfill Razagul's destiny you know a big part of the voice and why it's so funny is the absolute like Frankenstein assembly that's gone on in the sound editing I mean fuck knows what they've done to it but you know, they've made a, a conscious decision to make it sound fucking weird beyond his own That's delivery. It's too stylized and it, it takes you out of it. You know, my reaction is to laugh, but whatever your reaction yeah. is, it's not realistic. It's not, it, it takes you out of the action. I'm going to have similar things to say, honestly, about the sound mix in the next two films as well. I think Christopher Nolan's got a weird concept of. Um, sound audio and how to use it in his films and uh this is kind of the start of it he obviously sees something in that voice that we don't and and i I mean i don't know i i know people you know my my girlfriend thinks bane is really scary and the voice is part of it i think he's fucking ludicrous but i i you know i think he's funny beyond the voice i think it's funny that tom hardy is blatantly not a very tall man 
He's uh, blatantly <laughs> yeah. shorter than most of the people in most scenes, and then they. I've put written him a note here. Him. How tall is Bane? Because it doesn't <laughs> seem to be conclusive. From the- <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, as you know, as a Batman fan, as someone who's read comics, I'm not a full-on comic nerd, but I can tell you right now, this is not Bane as the character is supposed to be. Is sadly now, you know, this is kind of the definitive Bane and and will affect all future <laughs> portrayals of him to some extent. But Bane, you know, if, if the Joker is this kind of Machiavellian, I mean, not so much brain over brawn, but he's definitely not a, a beefcake, you know, he has to use his smarts to fuck with Batman, even if that's just by creating chaos. Bane is the opposite. Bane is meant to be a big, imposing brute. He's meant to be fucking huge, both in terms of height and just muscles, and he's scary because he can beat you to a, a pump, you know, pummel you to just nothing. He famously broke Batman's back in the comics. And um, mm. what they've done here is they've cast Tom Hardy in that role and then bent over backwards to sort it out instead of just casting someone right for the part. And the other thing is, you know, Bane is not an idiot, he's a smart guy, but he's usually in the henchman role, you know? You'd normally have Joker or someone get Bane to help him with a plan. You would not have Bane being this criminal mastermind, doing all this kind of big Machiavellian stuff to make a point, and, you know... Can I ask you, Sol, in the comics... Yeah. When Bane breaks Batman's back, is Tom Conti yeah. around to thump it back into place? <laughs> I, I mean, I, look, I haven't actually read the issues in question, but I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure it's an actual arc that involves his back being broken, and he can't just fix it himself in a hole in the ground by trying really hard. <laughs> I, I, this this film, oh my god! So, like, right. That's Bane for now. We can come back to it if necessary. But this film starts <laughs> with Batman being Howard Hughes. I, I think it's fairly common knowledge yeah. Christopher Nolan was developing a Howard Hughes biopic for a while. It seems like he got that out of his system with this film. It's this absolutely pointless, unnecessary tangent for like half an hour at the start that Batman's become a... a well, or Bruce Wayne, rather, has become a, a hermit, won't come out of his room, his yeah, legs are In the are narrative, all, like, we immediately mangled. jump forward eight years from the previous film, uh, and he's been basically a recluse uh, since then. Which I think is... I, I like that, the idea of just jumping forward eight years, because it really gives you a chance to play with new ideas, like things have moved yeah. on, things have changed. Although... I do like that. Would four years have not had the same effect? You know, the actual real-time... I get that they're trying to say more time has passed, but four years is enough for everything justified by the eight-year time gap to have happened, surely. Yeah. Well, the thing is, we you know we obviously spent a lot of time talking about Tom Hardy um, being overrated and overacting. Thank God Christian Bale's here to uh, rescue the film. Because we talked about Christian Bale a little bit when I was with you to do the Terminator films. Yeah. And I, honestly, it feels like the Emperor's new clothes to me. I do not get Christian Bale. I think he's <laughs> a ridiculous actor. I mean, last time you were on, I like him. That's what I said, essentially. Yeah, we had this and I think last time. week I've kind of covered, you know, I, I don't think Bruce Wayne is a very good or interesting character at the best of times. Mm. No, but when you give him some eyeshadow and a silly voice, he becomes Batman. <laughs> I, I think... I think Christian Bale and Christopher Nolan do an admirable job of trying to make something with him. 
So, you know, I think uh, Christian Bale, he's fine here. I, I don't have a problem with him, personally. I think he's doing as good a job as anyone could have with that role. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think he's a bit overrated, but that's not to say he's bad. It's sort of like Tom Hardy, really. is perfectly good. But I, I do think that, you know, I, I've made it pretty clear I'm not a massive fan of Tom Hardy or Christian Bale. But if you look at the supporting cast here, there are some really good actors oh, in incredible. supporting roles. And I don't think, I think they're all really underserved as well. They're not doing great performances either. And that tells me something about the film and maybe the direction rather than, you know, just the actors the, the entire The entire cast here is just, hey, we all had such a great time on Inception and that <laughs> worked really well. Everyone come come and make Batman with me. Yeah, I certainly get the impression that people enjoy working with Christopher Nolan. I mean, you can't, you can't deny that. The impression I get, Alan, is that people do two films with Christopher Nolan and then that's usually enough. One on the way up. Wanna- one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a curious thing that a lot of people will do two films often back to back with christopher nolan and that's it maybe more will come back and, and that's not to say everyone michael caine's been in everything since uh since batman was that the first one batman begins must be yeah, yeah he's a big fan of michael caine isn't he uh, christopher nolan Christian Bale's obviously done multiple because of playing Batman. Do you know what though? I I also th- I also thought because I just rewatched Inception as well. Thinking Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yeah, I really like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And then I was like, do I though? Because he doesn't do anything in these two films <laughs> that is very interesting. Yeah. And he has it does seem to have disappeared in the last five years. I haven't seen anything. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but I agree. Like, there's nothing about his two his two characters here and uh, Inception. Here. Yeah, they could be played by anyone. Uh, who else is in it? Yeah, Gary Oldman returns. I think he's great. Mm. I think he's arguably the best performance in the whole film, actually. But I don't think I would argue with that. He's, yeah, I mean, I've already, I've kind of shit on everyone else. Uh, Gary Oldman's all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mike, Michael Caine is the other guy giving a giving a bit of a fight for that title. He's, um... I, do you know, I ca- I can't really make up my mind on Michael Caine in the, you know the later <laughs> Michael Caine years because he's so Michael Caine. And I, I like him. I like the character he plays, albeit it seems to be, you know, pretty much the same character in every film. Yeah. I, I just, I, I like him. I can't help but like him. I'm the same. I, I always want to dislike him because I, I certainly, you know, take issue with some of his uh, personal politics and what have you. But everything I watch him in, I kind of come away thinking like, yeah, he's pretty undeniably great. <laughs> you know what I, I did get in this film he does a lot of the heavy lifting and the emotional story because he's the one in very little like, moments. Yeah, yeah. but I yeah. It, it, the whole thing this comes to the film in as a whole it's a, it feels rushed and those bits feel rushed. Those bits where Michael Caine suddenly has to give a bit of emotional thing. It's like, boom, 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 cut, 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 right, yeah, we've done the conversation, now get on. It's like, look, I've made a two-hour, 45-minute film. I need to cut out as much as possible uh, as it is, you know? But then I want to, because I want this 45-minute section of him dragging himself up. A well, let's, let's address this, well. because and you can apply this to all of these films. They are too long. Yeah. Well, this this is the worst one because you know it takes like an hour, hour and a half to get to the plot, which is the well, kind that's of it. no it feels man's like land. Two, it feels like two Bane films, takes over it? Gotham. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That feels like a start of a new film. That is a good idea for a film. Uh, Gotham is it becomes a no man's land, and the villains take over. Wonderful idea for a film. We don't need an hour of Bruce Wayne being a recluse. This is what I was leading to before. Bruce Wayne is a recluse at the start of the film. It adds nothing beyond a nice bit of character, and it is then immediately, immediately dealt with the second he decides that he wants to be Batman again, because they create a robot leg for him to wear. And <laughs> and it's just, 
the whole thing is completely pointless. It just wastes time in a film that should have been looking to not waste a second. And I, I, I just what about you what know about get the, rid of it. The, the character of Catwoman. Again, get rid of her. We could have got rid cut, of her. Cut her out the film. Again, I like Anne Hathaway, but the, the the film does not need that character. That's it. I say it. that's the first film, and then the second yeah. film is the Bane story. That, that's it. Yeah, she's yeah. and then she can pop up in that for a little uh, cameo as a, yeah. from the previous film. I think I used to think that I didn't like Anne Hathaway, and that was pretty much based on this film. Uh, and then Les Miserables came out, and you know, a few months later, and I was sort of like. Okay, fair enough. She's pretty good, actually. But, I mean, again, yeah, I d- she's doing nothing worthwhile here, and the character is terrible. I don't like Catwoman at the best of times, but, you know, usually people try and make her interesting as much at as they can. At least have her get bitten by a radioactive cat or whatever happens to Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> like, that. That's, that's how you want the Catwoman to come along. Yeah, not just good at gymnastics. But that's it. Every she just to get onto a bike, she just lifts her leg up to about six foot, and it's like, oh, don't be ridiculous. Just get on the bike, and she's wearing heels the whole time. Which I, I mean, I guess that's the character, but it just feels ridiculous. I know, yeah. It, it's it's ridiculous to the point of impractical, and you know, I I know that Batman's suit isn't exactly practical, you know, to the point that. I don't know if Bruce Wayne can pee in it and he can't turn his hmm. neck. They even acknowledge so it but... a few times in these films, don't yeah. they? They kind of say, oh, you want, you want to be able to move your neck? But it, it's, you know, it, it serves a purpose beyond just, like, looking cool, you know? It, I don't know. It, the whole film, it, it just to say we've spoken about Christopher Nolan being meticulous and things having to make sense and have some real-world value and all this sort of thing, Nothing about this film works on any level. It is mm. it's badly made. You guys are being very negative. I must admit I didn't care for the film. Hey, greatly, listen, but... I am gonna be really positive about the next two films. I love the next two films. So so shut your face, I'm gonna shit on this one. <laughs> okay. I think that's it. This this is the one film out of uh, a filmography of ten that I am I am really gonna go and, and yeah, I'm gonna take a shit on it. Because it's it's there's no excuse for it. That's what it is. This film is like what, two hundred and fifty million dollar budget, something in that ballpark. You know, years of prep and anticipation. They, you know, it, it's just it's unforgivable. But maybe he just knew it was a, f- a lost cause, and yeah, maybe. but then it's not. You c- even if it's not going to be a satisfying conclusion to you know the previous film reaching such heights, you can still make a good Batman movie. But it's just you know the, the League of Shadows. No one likes the League of Shadows. <laughs> no one likes Raj Al Ghul. The whole thing being this League of Shadows thing. Okay, nice idea to kind of bookend a trilogy. I can go with it if I have to, but they make too much of it, and it's completely nonsensical. Where where the fuck is that Lazarus pit? <laughs> is it in America? Well, while we're on the subject of that hole, it didn't seem that difficult to escape from, did it? You know, I mean, not no. easy, but... You yeah, just, just, you just have to jump. jump really hard. That's and the story really low there. stakes. Like if you don't do it, you're gonna fall, and it might hurt a bit. But you have another go. But th- that's it. And and they're, tr- they're trying to make some philosophical point of you have to you have to jump, knowing that like if you don't make it this time, you'll die. Rather than you've got a rope, even though falling that height with a piece of rope tied around your waist yeah, would cut you in half, dislodge Snap you. you in half. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially if you'd just broken your back and then magically fixed it with a bit of rope down there over the course of a month or so anyway. What is that pit? Who's running it? Who's (laughs) running that pit? 
They've got TV down there. They're obviously getting a reception. Not a good one, but they get a reception. They're getting electricity. There's obviously a supply of food and water because, you know, people are being born down there. Oh, man, you can get CNN everywhere. I've been to Bulgaria. You get CNN there. (laughs) (laughs) But what, like, that means there must be people manning that site and running it. So perhaps it's a, a League of Shadows joint. But well, then no, why? They, they, yeah, they established that it's Bane's prison by by that point. Because he comes down, drops someone off, and goes back off again. Like, he's obviously choosing to keep those people in there. But then why hasn't he got someone at the, why hasn't he got someone at the top with a gun? Because, well, you, well, you think someone's going to just jump that huge gap that an eight-year-old child could jump? <laughs> so it's someone that we were implicitly led to believe Bane himself has done, but does this film even ever get into what the mask on Bane's face is? It's a painkiller. Yeah, they. It's a yeah. Oh, they, yeah. They, what they said was that the the other people in the prison attacked him, tore his face off or something, and the mask controls the pain. That's not how masks work. <laughs> it's annoying that isn't it because in the comics it's a pretty nice idea he's got this you know crazy it's similar but in the comics he basically gets pumped full of this mad steroid laden toxin that makes him go mad and muscly and he can go all berserker when he kind of has a hit off it and it's tied into painkillers and so on from something that happened to him. But it's a nice idea. It's this duality of, you know, his power and his weakness. I, I feel like the film never really gets into it, or at least it, it doesn't yeah, get into it in a way. That, it's like the that, film yeah. is embarrassed that it has this comic book element to deal with. Yeah. So instead it just tries to, like, fob it off. But in doing so, it makes less sense than if they just embraced it and dealt with it for what it is. I, I I could I could honestly pick apart the problems in logic with this film for for hours. You know, the the fact that a nuclear bomb would have, you know probably kill them all with cancer within a few years. Well, you know, you know, film. Saul, how you you know as a as a writer that a great dramatic device to put a ticking clock on your plot. Not usually a five month ticking clock though, because usually. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, there's a bomb, we have to defuse it. How long have we got? Okay, five months. <laughs> right, let's not worry about it then. <laughs> but it's a, the bomb's driving around in a van with guns and... It, like every, This film is so fucking diffused. It doesn't know what it's trying to do. It's all over the place. The fact that when Batman walks his way across the desert that's inexplicably next to Gotham <laughs> and you know, somehow manages to get all his bat shit together, despite that not making any sense, because he's got no one to help him, he's still like a cripple. He still finds the time to climb up a skyscraper and paint it with fucking petrol <laughs> so he can make a big bat symbol appear. You know, crack crack a big bat in the ice or something, you know? <laughs> Do you know what else annoys me as well? And this is something that's in all the films, I guess, but particularly obvious here don't you just love it when there's a group of about six men all with guns and they wait and take it in turns for batman to beat them up uh without yes. a gun. <laughs> Stand off. wait yeah. wait because no because he doesn't use guns you see so the fact that they would just shoot him from 30 yards away before he had a chance to smack him in the face it has to be just brushed over uh, now in an effort to be positive <laughs> cinematography is the usual level of wally fister stuff you know good uh the music is 
I think we're going to talk about the Hans Zimmer relationship with uh, Christopher Nolan, but I, it, I was looking out for the music here because because I do like the score from the other films that we'll talk about later, mm. and, and so I thought, oh, maybe yeah, I'll listen in. And you know, again, even even it's almost like they were all funny. Even Hans Zimmer wasn't like this. Score's got that kind of that like no one for the life of them can figure out what's being said score but that's something uh, memorable that is pretty much where it begins and ends though you know it's it's not as good a score as the dark knight for example but it's it's not bad but I think everything about this film beyond that is absolute dog shit, and they should all be ashamed of themselves. Yep. Everyone involved. See, I, I, I mean, honestly, I I find you very negative, and I don't care to mount a defense. But for for me, it was more mediocre than terrible. I guess. I think that might be it, though. I think mediocre is so offensive coming from these people with this much at their fingertips to work with at this point in their careers. I, I think that's why it upsets me so much. And and to be honest, I think it is worse than mediocre because the the script is so bad. It's so badly thought through. It feels like yeah. several drafts away from being what should have been handed in. And and I just think that's unforgivable at this point. I mean, well, just one more thing I want to mention before we... Do. One more thing. Okay. I remember being very annoyed when we watched it in the cinema. The thing that really annoyed me. And frankly, when I watched it this time, it didn't bother me as much. The ending. The fact that they set Batman, Batman doesn't up die. as... Yeah, yeah. the Batman, he has to give up everything for the city. And ultimately, that means his life, and that's what he does. And then, oh, but actually, he's got a happy ending. Bye. That really annoyed me the first time I watched it. And I guess because this time I knew it was coming, it didn't hit me as hard. Same. But to yeah. not give him the the ending that the character deserves, it was it was a, a disservice to the character. I think there's something to be said for the idea of Batman having a happy ending and the idea that you can, you know, not give up everything and all this sort of stuff. I just think this film does it appallingly badly. I, it, it it just it really annoys me, and and the fact that they crowbar in this love story with yeah that, Catwoman, that comes out of nowhere. There's no like they're vaguely flirty, but again, like I don't know, Christopher Nolan can't do relationships or female characters or emotion, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. so it's just it's just a shit. If if I'd really felt he'd found love and wanted to put that part of his life be behind him, I'd be all for it. But it's just so insincere, and it's it's what we spoke about with these films being plot driven rather than character driven. It is a plot driven romance, therefore I hate it. It's just badly done. I I, I don't think Christopher Nolan knows how to direct a conversation. Like if it's just two people talking, he he doesn't know where where to what to do mm. where to, because I think it's too. Perhaps it's just too basic, like you just need because then he shoots it in this very basic way and cuts it together really quickly, as if we just need to plow through it and get onto the next oh, thing. That's not good enough, though, is it? There are there are fantastic examples of just a conversation in his filmography, though. You know, even in the Batman films, in the previous film, Michael Caine telling the story about a tangerine, the size of a tangerine. You know, that's that's directed really well from from memory. I think it's just a shot of Michael Caine. Maybe it zooms in a tiny bit. I don't know. You can see Christian Bale's back of his head. But, you know, it's 
that works fantastically and you and get that's, none and of that's that what here. you're missing here when michael kane is kind of looking in his eyes and yeah. says like i'm not burying you i've buried your parents i'm not doing it yeah it feels too quick it's just rushed and it's like you give like michael kane have this moment because that's what he's yeah. going to give you he's, he's got the power to do it and you've built up these characters to to establish that i must admit i hate the whole loyal servant thing but you know it's yeah. part of the the part of the batman thing i get it Anyway, I mean, like I say, I, I could sit around picking holes in this film all day because mm-hmm. there's 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 lots of problems. Lots of li- if you want to get really picky, there are some fucking problems with this film. But you know, suffice to say, I don't like it, <laughs> and I think it's I think it's actually badly made. I truly don't think Christopher Nolan wanted to make this film. I I think he I think Heath Ledger's death probably soured him on thinking about Batman for a while. What are you going to rate it? Um, well, I, I had this film as a 5 out of 10, which I think is perhaps the the fair rating to give it <laughs> as a standalone piece of work. That's that's what I gave when I came out. Because I, like I say, I think it's a bad film, badly made. You know, not not truly, truly terrible, just not good. But it pisses me off, and I've given it a second viewing now, and I, I really did want to like it on this second go-round. And so I think, much like you often treat films, Alan, I think coming from the legacy that it has and the pedigree involved and everything involved going into it, I just think this film is unforgivable. So I've bumped my score down to a 4 out of 10, and I think it is offensively bad. Well, I've gone gone for a 3, so I'm going even lower. (laughs) I, I, I just... I mean, the only redeeming feature for me is that it gave me a bit of a laugh. Like, every time Bale, <laughs> Bane was on screen... No, not every time he was on screen. Every time he spoke, I just pissed myself laughing. And, you know, <laughs> that's never a bad thing. But honestly, as, a, as an action film, you know, I was, I was bored during the big action scenes. I think it was... Yeah, I just think it was a badly made film. I think, like you're saying, you're judging this from where, as where it comes from, yeah, fair enough, I like The Dark Knight. But I think my my level for action superhero nonsense is pretty low anyway because I don't tend to go for them. So I don't think my I don't think I have particularly high expectations. Maybe that helped. I think I preferred it this time round to the first time I watched it, based on my memory. However, my rating didn't change. I gave it a six. Very generous. <laughs> wait, Very generous. Wait yeah. until we do the next two films. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so we're moving on uh, to Interstellar, which, similarly to Inception, is a kind of very high sci-fi concept uh, that Christopher Nolan is obviously really likes the idea and someone has decided to give him a huge budget to realise it. Well, I, I, I think at this point, Christopher Nolan truly had come into his own as a, an auteur, as a household name, as a, a selling point for these films. I, I think this is the point now. Well, to be honest, I think about Inception mm. was the point where companies could just start giving him money to make whatever he wanted, and it was a safe investment. I think he kind of got away with Inception a little bit. I'm not sure how he got that made, but having got it made and it was so successful, they sort of gave yeah. him a bit of a pass to make this, didn't they? Inception was 100%. Wow, The Dark Knight came out really well. We'd really, really love you to make the third one of these films. All right, well, if you want me to come back, that's fine, but I get to make whatever I want with a blank check. Wow. (laughs) But, you know, coming off The Dark Knight Rises, he didn't really have that going for him. But Warner Brothers were obviously pretty desperate to keep him, and and they've, you know, I think every film he's made 
since then has still been with Warner Brothers. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, in, Interstellar, just to give a basic thing, it's a kind of post-apocalyptic world. Something's killing all the food. It's pre-apocalyptic, yeah. I would say. It's, well, we're it's on the, the run-up to an inevitable apocalypse. Well, yeah. we, we, we learn that we learn that billions of people have died. The population's much smaller than it used to be. Yeah, and uh, things are only going to get worse, but then space plan, uh, go up into space, try and find a new planet to colonise, and uh, this particular character that we're following, Matthew McConaughey, he goes up because he's an old NASA pilot. That's the straightforward story but then it's kind of really wrapped up with his relationship with his daughter and then obviously once they get to where they're going what happens there it's even quite difficult to describe in simple terms <laughs> uh, well it's it's not a clear-cut premise it's yeah. quite uh no, it's it's messy it's about a lot I of things i you know i i really like the, i really like the um the earthbound premise you know the, the setup of that world i love yeah. the way it's realized it's kind of you know, we're based in the near future, but it's there's almost this kind of 1930s agricultural agrarian society. It's like a sort of dust bowl steampunk type thing. Mm. Uh, but you know, and we, you know, he captures that drone, and uh, so there's there's kind of these two worlds that you're already seeing collide even before they they discover the presence of NASA. But I think the film, you know, to look more broadly about the film, you know, obviously it's it's a science fiction film and it's about space, but. You know, there was a lot here um, that tugged my parental heartstrings. You know, it's about it's about that's uh, interesting. Parenthood. Can I pick that up right away? Because I think that's one of the big failings for me in this film. I don't think the emotional story touches me at all. And in fact, I think it mm. leans on it so heavily that it's why I don't particularly care for the film. And I'll go the other way. I find it really stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, the the way that they they react on an emotional level, I think I'm far too logical for it. Yeah, and I don't have kids, so I can't really. Well, relate. I was wondering how you felt about the fact that he obviously <laughs> had a, a favorite child. Yeah, the boy can fuck off, can't he? What's that? <laughs> yeah, idiot farm boys can yeah. fuck off, but yeah. my smart science girl is. Perfect. All I'm all I'm saying, bro, is that might be why you didn't relate to it. <laughs> I um I remember when this film came out in a weird sort of turn of events I I didn't go and see it for ages I wasn't even sure if I was going to bother at the cinema because The Dark Knight Rises really burnt me mm. and it was enough to put me off Christopher Nolan for a while and the initial response to this film was pretty negative you know I, I think it got relatively decent reviews like 72% I think it has on Rotten Tomatoes but all the film people I know were just slating it, making fun of it, saying it was shit. And it's nearly three hours long. Mm. I think it is the longest film Christopher Nolan's made. It's two hours, 49 minutes. And I just thought, you know what? I don't need that. Nothing about that film appeals to me. But based on, you know, it's Christopher Nolan and whatever, I, th I think I went to see it, like, just as it was about to leave the cinema. And I had very low expectations uh, and maybe that played into why I, I loved it so much, because I, I didn't know what to expect, but I found this incredibly compelling sci-fi world that just kind of hooked me in, and then, yeah, I, I you know, I was completely on board. I want to see him save the world. Well, I want to, no, well, you see, I want to see him get back to his daughter. That was the, was the emotional resonance for me. Like, yeah, yeah, I know he's saving the world, I get that, but but that wasn't the, that wasn't you see, the I, emotional that's the pull. 
I had exactly the opposite. I was like, "Well, you stop fucking about with your daughter. Like, that's not important. You're trying to save the world here. <laughs> like, that is not." <laughs> and it was the same with every because yeah. that is the only emotional beat you get with the daughter, the, him and the daughter. Then there's a bit with Anne Hathaway and some guy that she's drawn to or whatever. Yeah. And it was just like, "Do you want to fucking save the earth here? What are you doing? Like, stop pissing about. You can't make the stakes that high." And then go, oh, but this is important as well, guys, by the way. And just the that, that well, I mean, ultimately, that was the, it's been this huge block for me. And I just can't enjoy this film because of that. If I can jump on to that, I think this film is very much a conscious effort from Christopher Nolan to counter his critics that suggest that he is an emotionless robot. <laughs> as we have done. I think this... Yeah, I think this was very much his attempt to make an emotionally driven film to show that he's got a soppy side and he believes in love. Uh, in fact, he believes in love at first sight. Do you know that, Alan? Uh, I know he's been married to the same woman for 25 years or whatever it is, he, so I guess that's pretty he claims He claims that he fell in love with his wife at first sight and... To give him credit, the fact that he's been with her ever since, you know, does lend a bit of credit. That, that's to that it. That's statement. also that I I do know that not only are they married for twenty odd years, she's the producer of every one of his films. They work together. They must work together every day, and that is insane as far as I'm concerned in a relationship. If you're that invested in someone else. It would drive me I mean, absolutely mental. <laughs> but I appreciate I am an unemotional robot, so that's okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, so maybe you're not the target for this emotional thing. <laughs> that's, that's, I think that's basically what I'm dealing with here. <laughs> Let me tell you my story. My, 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 the way, way I didn't watch this film at the cinema, but I remember when it first came out on, on the television, we watched it, my wife and I. And then I watched it again the next night on my own because she didn't want to watch it again because that was stupid. (laughs) I was really hooked on this film. And so I hadn't seen it again since then. I watched it this week. And and I kind of thought to myself, oh, God, I hope it it stands up to my memory. And honestly, it did. I I love this film. I I, I think this might be my favorite film of the 21st century. I'm going to say that. (laughs) I love, love, love it. I think you've got the you've got the emotional pull there. You've got that sort of that that circular love story of him getting back to his daughter. But but I also I love the science fiction element of it. I love the I love everything that happens on man's planet. I think Matt Damon is brilliant. I love the action sequence on the water planet. You lost me. I think it's great. (laughs) I think every bit of it is. I think this is a wonderful film. I mean, yeah, personally, I, I really loved it. I I never got bored with the runtime. No, I I mean, I was fine with that. I, I, it's it it's structured well. You know, it's watchable. It, it rolls along. Yeah. You want to know what's going to happen. I will say it didn't hold up nearly as well for me on the rewatch, but I don't know how much of that is due to me not giving it 100% of my attention like I do in the cinema. And you don't have that cinematic experience. Uh, one thing I will say, actually, I'm so glad I did see this film in the cinema, not just for the obvious visual uh, aspect of it, but the audio mm. aspect. Th- this film was um, a bit controversial when it came out because a lot of people were unable to hear the dialogue in certain scenes over the overwhelming music score that was blared at a much higher volume than it often would be. And a lot of cinemas started putting up signs saying, you know, please be aware that the sound mix in this film is an artistic decision. It's not, it is not us. Please stop telling us to fix it. And, you know, certainly in the cinema, like, I get it. It's a weird sound mix. It, 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 it's 
quite overwhelming. But I like that. I think it adds to this cosmic sense of this film and the and the, the, the theme of, you know, love <laughs> as a as an entity, for whatever reason, I, I think it really does a lot to kind of just, you know, blow you back in your seat. And and yeah. even watching it again on TV the other night, it it still retained some of that quality in the sound mix, even though it wasn't with, you know, whatever incredible cinema quality speakers. And, you know, I think that speaks to Christopher Nolan as a really remarkable director, that he's still playing with weird little techniques yeah. like that and mm. seeing what they can do for his films. Well, I, I watched this film for the first time less than a year ago, wasn't it? So, and I can't say anything strongly about sound effects watching it. But you, but you did watch it on your little laptop. I think it's something that now I've seen sound I, I think the score is incredible there's several times where you sort of catch yourself well i caught myself you know really really in the moment and it's the music that's pulling you in mm. most definitely um so the cast here you know matthew mcconaughey's a newcomer to to christopher nolan's well this was in the films, middle of the mcconnaissance wasn't it he'd just come off um, it was yeah, detective yeah, yeah. and you know he was great in that and this was him revitalizing his career and i you know i think he's great in this even that there's that self-indulgent scene where he's watching the videos and you think god this is the oscar reel isn't it but but even though you kind of feel it's a bit self-indulgent he pulls it off i think i, I think it's a great scene i i don't think it's self-indulgent even i i just think it's a really great scene it's well acted it's and brilliant. it could be done very badly yeah but that, i guess that's what i mean yes it, it could so easily have just been um you know painful to watch but he, he carries it beautifully but I thought one of the really, uh, really, I think, probably underrated supporting performance in this is Casey Affleck as the son, as an adult. Yeah, I think yeah. He, again, he's only in it for a handful of scenes and he's brilliant. Like he's, he's sort of burning frustration and anger. It's, it's, it's fantastic. I, honestly, I think, I think the whole cast are great. I wish I didn't like Casey Affleck as much as I do. <laughs> I don't want to like him and he's a bit problematic, know, but he is a very good actor, it has to be said. And yeah, you do get a lot of that here. He's very good. This is my my problem, I think. Like the what what this comes down to is like this guy, right? Matthew McConaughey guy, really loves his daughter. That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's the beginning and end of the film. It's like there's it's just like there's nothing here. Like like yeah, a guy loves his daughter, right? Okay. Yeah, and that that love for his daughter drives him and drives the human race yeah. beyond beyond the bounds of our rotting planet to find something exactly. more. Is there not something to be said for the love between a, a parent and child as a concept well, for a film? Not for There's Alan, a thousand no. <laughs> films that are just about a man loves a woman or vice versa, and that's it. Like, I'm fine with that. I don't think films need to be more elaborate than an exploration of love or an exploration of any emotion. Well, it, 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 yeah, it doesn't explore anything. He loves his daughter. That never stops, it never changes, it never wavers. Well, it does. He, he, he has to weigh up how he wants to serve her as a parent. But anyone who is going to go, do you know what, I could save the world, but you know, I need to make sure my daughter gets to school every morning it's insane it's just the two things are too far apart it's not like oh should i move to texas and get this new job that would give me a good promotion or do i want to stay here with my family it's just it's completely nonsensical yeah because that's, cause like, that's I, I boring just, so they've made it big and exciting Alan, that's right he doesn't 
there is no um, th- there's no scene at the beginning where he's weighing up the options. He's got to go. He knows he's got to go. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't make it any less painful. But uh, yeah, I just like what I've seen every war film ever made. You know, what I mean, I know what it's like. People have to go away. Yeah, and, and again, war's out. boring. This puts it in space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just like I just couldn't I can't get past the fact that nothing happens. It's just not that nothing happens, but it, the end result is nothing. And in, in the the problem with it is they like it's it's suggesting something is happening. The whole idea that this ten year old girl is going to hold this bitter grudge against her father for thirty years. Yeah, that that is stupid. Like, I appreciate really when you're ten years old, you don't necessarily understand these. Yeah, things. when you're ten, you're more. But by the time she's a bit older, she got. She goes and works in the place that's dealing with it all. She knows exactly what's happening. She has all the context. Yeah. It's just ridiculous that she would then just be bitter about it for 30 years. Uh, that annoyed me. I agree. That is a it's a real failing of the film, that, mm. if you ask me. Um, the, the other major failing that really leapt out at me on this repeat viewing... We're talking as though people have seen the film. I think most people probably have. If you haven't, what is it? The, the world's dying. It's running out of food. They can't grow food. They send a guy into space... Uh, what is it? A, a wormhole's opened up, and it offers a doorway to twelve potential, mm-hmm. uh, potentially uh, habitable planets. So they're going to see if any of them are, you know, viable to live on. Now, this team of astronauts were sent off ahead, and they like failed in their job. Basically, they are getting signals from one planet suggesting that maybe it is. A viable place, so they go to visit it. They get there, Matt Damon's there, that's a big surprise. Um, I've spoken to Calvin about his distaste for this film, he, he does not like Interstellar, and he hated it because Matt Damon really took him out of the movie, which I think is a stupid complaint. Yeah, it takes you out of the film, but his argument was, well, they should have set him up earlier on when you see the photos of the astronauts, and it's like, yeah, but... Yeah, if they'd showed the astronauts earlier... And you'd seen one of them's Matt Damon, you go, oh, well, he's going to turn up later. <laughs> That's what I mean. That would give it away that he's going to appear later. Yeah. It didn't take me out of it at all because I know, I understand that actors play characters in films. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, for me, it did, it took me out of it for like one second when I went, oh, Matt Damon's oh, in the Matt film. Matt Damon. Yeah. And then I, and then I was straight back into it. Um, but I must say on the rewatch, I don't know if I like this uh, sequence, and I, I, I want you guys to justify it to me, because I'm not saying I dislike it, but what struck me, having rewatched it the other night, and how it's nearly three hours long, was, huh, you could just cut Matt Damon's entire sequence from the film, mm. and change like two lines of dialogue, and it would be the same exact film. Okay, so much. I I agree to an extent. I, 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 I don't say I particularly like this section, but I think what we go through with Matt Damon's character is an interesting exploration of an emotional issue. And I don't think we have that at any other point in the film because every other emotional level is just, well, you know, so-and-so loves so-and-so that's to be, this was a bit of gray area, a bit of like, well, that's a, that's a moral quandary. Why would you do that? And I don't, I, I think it's stupid what he does. And I'm not sure. I don't entirely his understand this plan, do it, honestly. But that's it. It's not rational. It's a man who's been lost in space for two years. Yeah, he's, he's I lost think his that's mind. the point. I think that two years ago, Matt Damon was Matthew McConaughey, and he was the bravest of the brave, and he went out and he sacrificed everything to do it. And then he he was human, you know, and he he caved in and he put everyone at risk because he was human. And and, that's, and he knows he's done that as well, and he's trying to deal with that. 
At that point, we're seeing a contrast with McConaughey. You know, he calls him a fucking coward. But, but we see, you know, later on, we see McConaughey when he's in the bloody bookcase trying to talk to his daughter. And he's mm. saying, stay, stay. You know, he, he doesn't want to go through all of this. So he's, Well, that, you know, that really pissed well. me off because he knows, he knows those messages don't work because he was there the first time. <laughs> yeah. And he heard her say, well, it know, says stay. And he... In it. That really wound me up. It's like, look, you know that doesn't work. Try a different message. Try My a different message. The point is, McConaughey is, you know, he's he's our bra- he's our hero, and yet he doesn't want to be the hero. He, he he's human as well. He just wants to be back with his daughter. And and Matt Damon is Matt Damon's character is almost giving us a, you know, he's pre-configuring that for us. Mm. Matt Damon's character is called Doctor Man. <laughs> yes, he's human. That's a little bit Route One, isn't it? Showing now, his humanity. <laughs> In the course of trying to find like some film analysis to explain the, the necessary meaning of his whole sequence, after I realised, hang on, I think you could just cut that, uh, I found the Interstellar wiki, which refers to him as Dr. Hugh. Okay, well, I'm glad that's I, not in the film. Now, thankfully, I, I I dug a little deeper, and it does just appear to be some online trolls uh, changing his name on all the uh, all the various sources to be Hugh Man and pretending that Christopher Nolan said it in some interview. But then, if you actually look at the video, he doesn't say it. I don't think there's anything to suggest that is actually his name. But, I do, I do um, think if you were gonna. Christopher Nolan sort of wrote that and he was like, I'll I'll do that, but I will definitely never reveal it in the film because it'd be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but on a script basis, it's fine. <laughs> anyway, so Matt Damon comes and goes. And you know, I I like the scene as a whole. It just it, it is a long film. It feels like that could have gone. But mm. I, I get what you're saying. It is a nice exploration. I accept of... that. I th- I think you're right in that that could have been cut. You know, if if you were making a sensible length film, yes, you could cut that scene. Mm. But but that doesn't mean I don't like the scene. I, I love that whole sequence. Yeah, yeah. Can I can I point out a couple more? Um, we talked about Matt Damon. Just a couple more of the supporting cast that I really liked. The the guy who yeah. plays uh, Romilly. Uh, what's his name? David Giassi. I don't know him. I've yeah, never heard his really name know before. Him either, yeah. But when they when they come back from the water planet, and because of relativity, he's been on his own for several years. The way he plays that is fantastic. He's kind of withdrawn and not sullen. That's not the right word. But he just really struggles to make eye contact with them. And they've been gone for a couple of hours. But but he's been alone for all these years, and yeah, he, he yeah. portrays that so well. Yeah, yeah. It's not just that he's a bit he's older. He's, yeah, just being yeah, like being alone for that long is gonna mess. And with and, and in in a couple of sentences and a look, he he, he portrays that. It, it's I think it's a really amazing performance. I'd like to talk about the cast here. Um, there is a robot in this film. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple, but uh, he is voiced by a man called Bill Irwin. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that seem like a weird choice? Not that anything he does is is wrong. But it just, it, it seems like such a, that's where you get a big name, you know. Paul Bettany. Isn't that the opposite of the Matt Damon problem? You know, you, you, you don't, you're not thinking, oh, that's Paul Bettany. Yeah, you, you either get a huge name or you get someone with a really interesting voice. But here we've just got a, a kind of jobbing actor with a really ordinary voice. And maybe that's the point. The reason why, Saul, is that he also basically puppeted the thing on set. 
Like it was uh, mostly okay. right. on set. So okay. yeah, you need someone who's going to commit to that um, as well. Okay. I don't right, know the details right, of that, right. but that thing was an actual physical thing that he was wearing most of the time or something. Oh, right. Wow. Didn't realize that. I, I tell you what, th- those, those clunking great machines are obviously ridiculous and, um, you know, they are a little bit laughable, but <laughs> the, the voice performance is great. I really like the character. I think they're really well realized. I think they're yeah, very unique. I've not really mm. seen much like them in other sci-fi. And yeah, you know, it is laughable. When when the thing has to go quick to yes. pick up Anne Hathaway and it starts yeah. rolling along, it's really funny. But it's also like It's original, isn't it? You know, it makes sense. It works. It, it's not it's not funny in a way you know, it's funny in a way where Matthew McConaughey probably found it funny the first time he saw one of them do it. And mm-hmm. then it's just normal, isn't it? That um, when does Anne Hathaway have her big uh, speech? The one about love. That's when. That's um, that's when they're deciding whether to go to Man's Planet or the the, the planet where the, the bloke mm. she was in love with. So she does this whole speech um, about how you've got to trust in love and you've got to uh, you know you imagine how much beyond logic. And yeah, but Matthew McConaughey just fucks her off and does what he wanted anyway. It's quite funny. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand maybe it's some evidence some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive i'm drawn across the universe to someone i haven't seen in a decade who i know is probably dead love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space no it isn't we're no more capable of perceiving love than we are capable of perceiving hunger or lust or or annoyance. This is it, right? Mm. This 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 sums up the the film for me somewhat. I think this was the really the low point, but it was saved by the fact that McConaughey was just basically. So she says, you know, love. Yeah. We should follow love because maybe that does mean something. And he was like, no. Uh, the fact that you've even said that means I don't trust anything you say, and you shouldn't have been let on this ship because you're obviously insane. <laughs> uh, you call yourself a scientist. Well, I I think that. You know, I think Christopher Nolan is basically saying love is this magic force that, because the only way that's true is if you can perceive someone else's love in a two-way thing, and I I don't think you can. I I you know I think you perceive love from yourself. Mm. You know what I mean? And maybe you pick up that someone else loves you back, but in a way that transcends time, that means nothing to you unless you love them in the first place to be a... Do you know what I mean? I just mean? think that's... So, I think it's, you know, we, we get a little bit of black hole woo, don't we, about, uh, you know, multiple dimensions and all that sort of thing. And it's, but it's, I, it's, I, I think I, Christopher I think Nolan that... believes this. That's the problem. I think he actually <laughs> believes this because he, he, he says he fell in love at first sight with his wife and I think he believes that love is magic. Yeah. Literal magic. Yeah. But, but obviously that scene is there to set up later when he goes into the f- fifth dimension or whatever it is and uh, you know he can navigate this three dimensional projection of a five dimensional world through love because it connects him to moments uh, with his daughter or whatever I, I'll just about buy that on a sci-fi that's what film I mean by the thing. black hole woo they they sort of they sort of use love as a, an analogy for a dimension don't they that's, exactly that's they've spent they... two hours building us up to that. I don't buy it as a cold concept, but you know, it's... That's the reason the film works for me, is that thematically it does pay off in the third act, Mm. and if you buy into it as 
part of the world of the film. You know, it's relevant to the themes and the structure, so I can make my peace with it, but I'm not a fan of it. Before we get to the ending, can I just... One more scene which I really loved was the mm-hmm. uh, uh, Matt Damon trying to dock with the space station, yeah. blowing it, and then Coop goes and flies on and, and, you know, they spin around and they manage to get docked on and he saves the day. That that whole sequence, and again, the score is really important in this. That That's about a 10-minute sequence from start to finish, and I was on the edge of my seat the whole way through it. Third time of watching. It's very nicely done, and... You know, to say this is a sci-fi film, it's not particularly action-oriented, and that's about as good as it gets if you like action. But even that's quite understated. It's all about, you know, finding the right, the precision moment and all that sort of stuff. Well, there's a lesson there, because that's better than any of the action scenes in Dark Knight Rises. (laughs) So, yeah, the ending, when he actually communicates with his daughter, it's all a bit too contrived for me. Like, he can influence gravity... But that somehow translates to the second hand on a watch, which then yeah. continues to move in the pattern he's dictated forever, I guess, because she's got to be able to read it over several t- times, I guess. It just that, like, if you're going to communicate with gravity, that makes sense with the books and the and the, even the dust, I'll give you that. But what? And then the fact that it's all about her. Because the problem, my problem with it, ultimately, is that I don't feel like it's supposed to be like, well, you know, she just happened to find the watch. Or think of the watch. Or, you know, they just left the bedroom like that for 40 years. I think it's supposed to be there's some sense of fate. There's something drawing them together. There's something drawing these things there. Yeah, and, love. Yeah, and that just really annoys me, I think. Because, <laughs> because it's total <laughs> shite. Let me let, let me read you my, my notes from this scene. Uh, here's what I've written. First thing I've written is, is this a brilliant visual metaphor or is it bollocks? And then I've written, this is absolutely beautiful. The score is amazing. Wow. So I asked the question and I answered it. It was very close to being bollocks, but I think he pulled it off. <laughs> you know, you, you know that time, uh, that however they visualize the weird time thing that he finds his way into... Uh, you know that's like a practical effect. Apparently, they like okay. built a set, projected a load of light effects onto it. It's not CGI. Oh, really? Well, Nolan is very practical when it comes to. I was going to say it's quite remarkable, it. though, isn't it? And I really like that. I like the way that they achieve things. Uh, in, in even in even in the stunts like that plane in Dark Knight Rises, I I like the I, the fact that that's practical stunts, and I think it it gives it a different flavor to most of what you see at the moment. Yeah, 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 completely. But at the end, when we see Matthew McConaughey setting all these little messages in play that we saw his daughter receiving at the start of the film, we are seeing it intercut with Jessica Chastain playing his daughter as an adult, kind of looking over it again. And she has this realisation that it was her dad the whole time. But there's there's literally nothing to trigger that realisation mm. other than she looks at it and it's intercut with footage from another point in time for us, the audience. It, it's complete bullshit that she just sort of thinks it was dad all along, out of nowhere. And that annoyed me. Okay, I have a question for you. There's After that scene then, there's a coda where, where we see him arrive back and she's an old lady and they meet again. And that's lovely and emotional. So, But my question is, do we need that coda? I, I can see why the film needs it, you know, for that closure. But I don't know. At the end of the bookcase scene, I was satisfied. I thought that was—I thought that would have been a great place to to end, to end the film. But I'm not sure about this because I, I, you know, the final scene with with her with her in bed. You know, I had, a, I had another little cry, so it was a great scene. But I, I don't know that we needed that. I think it. I think it would change the film. I think it would make it quite a tragic film. Mm. 
uh, in that he ultimately, as far as we know, gets lost out. In I think I think that's where it was heading. I think I think that's how it should end. I think. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I, I kind of part of me definitely agrees, but I think I think it's such an unashamedly sentimental film mm. that it kind of makes sense that he does make it back to I fulfill don't know. his promise I think promise it would have made daughter, sense for him to sacrifice everything the... for love. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, because he, he promises that he'd see her, mm. you know, again, and he manages to see her one more time, and he, he it's also important to note that he sees what she became, and that she was successful, and that humanity isn't doomed and extinct, because because that's another thing, you know, it, it it tells us that humans survive and live on. I think it's quite a different, darker, bleaker film, obviously, if we don't get that. But I think if it had ended there, then, you know, it would have ended with him, the, the circle being complete, him finding his way back to his daughter and giving her, the, you know, saving her, saving the world, but ultimately sacrificing himself to do it. I don't think I would like the film nearly as much if it did end there, because mm. when I was re-watching it, I kind of thought, like, oh, that's a bit unsatisfying there. And then I remembered, oh, wait, no, there's, hang on, there's a whole, like, mm. another scene <laughs> after this bit. I was gearing up for it to end there, and then, you know, obviously it doesn't. I, I do really love this film. I, I think this is a great example of just Christopher Nolan, what he does. He's perhaps reaching a bit beyond his means, with this film, which is something that I don't think, I don't think I've ever had a sense of him not being in complete control of what he's doing before. But he's still like this master filmmaker doing very interesting things. So yeah. I, I really was, you know, very impressed with it when I first watched it, and and rewatching it, yeah, it didn't quite live up to my memory of it the first time. So I don't know. I, I'm still not entirely sure if I'm gonna bump my rating down or not. I'm. Uh, I'm going to let you guys go first and mull it over. Well, I don't think I'm going to I'm going to be much of a surprise. I'm giving it 10 out of 10. I you know, I I've got nothing but wow. nothing but good things to say about this. Well, okay, I'll go counter to that then. I mean, I it's a technically great film and there's definitely bits that I like. I found it very watchable, but I just found it ultimately totally vapid and and you know, all it says is like, "Oh, love, it's good, isn't it?" Eh? It never gets past that for me. And it feels like it has the potential to be so much more. So, it, like, it's frustrating in that sense. Uh, I give it a six out of ten. Okay. I I gave this film when I first saw it a nine out of ten, and I'm I'm really I'm mulling over in my head if I should bump it down to an eight. I don't know. I I I think I've got to give that first viewing some credit. A film only can do that once. The whole mystery box and what's going on. Mm-hmm aspect of it and i found that so compelling on my first viewing yeah i'll, I'll stick with my nine but i, I it's, you know it's a very low <laughs> 8.5 being rounded up i think this is perhaps a signifier of nolan having peaked a few films ago and he's kind mm. of on a downward path but i still think a lot of him i'm giving it nine out of ten right. so after that Christopher Nolan didn't have any more Batman films to make, so he made Dunkirk, which is essentially the story of uh, you know the getting the troops off of Dunkirk Beach, getting the troops off of Dunkirk and that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Isn't it? That's basically. It. And you know, I'll I'll jump straight in here. My my issue with this film is largely similar to Interstellar in that I just I don't think it has anything to say. Mm. It's a sort of a, a retelling of some events. With nothing added, yeah, Absolutely I mean, nothing look, to, to kind of bring one to man's table. quest to have a shit, isn't it? 
you and I have covered this film in a previous episode of the podcast. We we did it for the 2018 Oscars episode yes. where this was uh, up for you? Best Picture. That was the last time I watched it. That was the last time I watched it as well. And yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, I'll just lay my cards out there. I, I think this is a good film. I think it's, you know, very accomplished, but I don't think it's a good Christopher Nolan film. I expect more from him, to be honest. This just feels like, and I, I said this at the time, and I think other people have said similar things about 1917, mm. it feels like a video game. It, it feels like a VR experience. It's not a movie, but much in the same way as Gravity, which came about four years beforehand. It's not telling a story so much as it's just putting you in a situation and you have to mm. live it for two hours. And I, I think there is value to mm-hmm. that. I agree. But I agree. I don't think there's any depth or character here. Well, I well, I, I originally went to see this at the cinema and I came out of the film quite frustrated. And just things like the fact I couldn't tell the characters apart yeah. because they're all young men wearing <laughs> yeah, the same thing. I did have a bit of that. That, that frustrated me. I was also frustrated about the, the, the sort of mixed up timelines and I couldn't, I couldn't quite figure out what was happening yeah. until the very end. So, so for the first hour and 15 minutes of the movie, I was, I was confused as to who was where and what was happening. Now, mm. on the second watch last week, that problem had gone. And because I knew the characters a little better, that problem had gone as well. And I enjoyed it a lot more on the second watch than on the first watch. Now, maybe that's just because I, I got myself hung up on, on those things in the first place. But having then got that out the way, and perhaps my expectations of, of, of the building of any character had gone, then <laughs> I could enjoy it for what it was. And I did enjoy it a lot more the second time. I thought it was... A, I, th- I thought it was as you said a minute ago, it was it was sort of taking you in and, and making you feel part of it. And it succeeded on that level. It, for me, it just feels like someone's gone, right, we're making a documentary about Dunkirk. Um, we're going to do some like reenactments. And then like their budget's gone out of whack and uh, they've got out of hand. And they're like, let's just shove all these together and put them in a film. Let's just put them... That is it. Is that enough? Now... I, I just want to touch on the issue of, and this has come up in our two previous Christopher Nolan episodes to varying extents, but the issue of representation. <laughs> well, obviously he hates women. Which I think more than anything is, <laughs> more than anything I'm picking up something that was discussed last week, but this film was criticised upon its release for being so white. I think uh, we, we talked a lot last, last week about uh, representation of women specifically in Christopher Nolan's films. Obviously, Nolan has decided, like, I, let's make a film that there's no women in at all, and no have a historically justified reason to do so. <laughs> so that way, you can just don't have to deal with that problem at all. There is one woman in it. She's serving the tea. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think there's two, but yeah, they're they're just. Yeah, yeah, they're on that woman boat. But, you know... They're basically, uh, what, nurses giving out food? Fair yeah. enough. That is at least, you know, historically accurate. And, and here's the interesting thing, right? You're saying about representation of people of colour and all that sort of thing. I consider myself a pretty well-educated and, 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 you know, open-minded person. I have no idea, really, of what kind of proportion of ethnic minorities were were of the British troops, you know? I, I've not. Is it one percent? Is it six percent? I I have no idea. I, I actually tried. <laughs> I actually tried to find some hard numbers on this percentage wise, 
And all I could find were articles or forum posts discussing Christopher Nolan's film, Dunkirk. <laughs> the best I could find on the topic was that it, it is perfectly conceivable that you could go through the events of this film without seeing a person of colour, but at the same time it is perhaps a bit disingenuous to paint that as likely, I think was kind of the vibe I was getting. Also, would uh, it would be interesting, or would you make a point, if you had a load of Indian troops, would they all be in one troop together? They weren't mingling them up, were they? Would they all be stuck at the back of the queue and everyone telling them to piss off? Yeah, you had, on the you had Indian <laughs> army regiments, so it was all Indian soldiers yeah. together with, with British white officers. Yeah. That was how it would have worked. I think what tended to happen was that the, the Indian soldiers got the got the sort of the crappy jobs basically that you know they were they were laboring and digging trenches but but the but actually this this part of the war dunkirk it was you know they were all mushed together on a beach so you know they would have just been all in the same place yeah so i think it must be a creative decision he made maybe that's not fair but i think my my guess is to give him the benefit of the doubt my my guess is that perhaps he just felt it would be a distraction uh, because so many people wouldn't be aware of it, uh, it would take them out of the film. And there, there is perhaps, as I said last week, perhaps a justification that that's not his story to tell. You know, it might feel a bit insincere if he was to kind of wage into that whole thing. Uh, not that I'm saying that's the right attitude to take at all. It's just I'm, I'm trying to figure out why. Well, I think I think he you, wouldn't. if you're going to do that, you have to, uh, uh, from his position, you have to make a conscious effort to go. Do you know what I want to say something about the representation? Yeah. Let's just get a let's get an Indian troop. We'll put them in the middle of these extras. That's fine. And it, you don't have to make you don't have to draw attention to or anything. But do you, you know what? Christopher Nolan isn't dealing with extras. You know what I mean? It's like the the mm, yeah. the second AD or whoever has gone right. What extras do we need? We're making a. Uh, a war film in the forties. British troops uh, will need young white men. Can you find me as many white men from eighteen to thirty-two as you can find, please? Like that. That's it. And the person who's making that call has had the same education as me, and would think, oh yeah, it's all British white troops. Uh, is there Indian troops? I don't know. Whatever. They're probably in India or something. That's it. And it's so. At some point, someone has to make a kind of conscious effort to yeah. to kind of say yeah. something about yeah. it. But yeah, I mean, I'm not going to hold it against him for not doing it. I mean, it's just... It's yeah, way, isn't it? yeah. Well, can we talk about the, just the, you know, the horror of war? I find when I watch war films, and this was no exception, I, I end up just extremely angry about, about the waste, about the way we, we treat people, the way we treat young men. Yeah. You know, the, like, the, there's a, a bit where Mark Rylance on the boat, he's talking about Killian Murphy, and he says, oh, he's shell-shocked George. He's not himself. He may never be himself again. And that's, I'm, I'm, I'm the father of a 14-year-old boy, and as I look around the world, one of my biggest fears is that there's a war, and he goes to that war. And even, you know, even if he comes home, he'll never be the same again. And I just think the way that we treat generations of young men and send them off to war, it, 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 it makes me furious. Mm. It, it, every war film I ever watch, I get this, I just get this pent-up anger. Yeah, you were furious about Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> but that kid, the kid who dies on the, on the boat... That's a tragedy that's presented as this tragedy. and But it's just one more death than amongst all the others. And you think, oh, it's a shame that kid died. We'd have used him on D-Day in four years, you know? Mm. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't quite figure out what they were trying to tell with that story. Is it Was it a sort of like, hey, you know, just regular old people, they can make sacrifices too? Or was it saying, look, this is just another meaningless death. It was a stupid thing yeah. that happened. Yeah. And he was three years younger than all those others. He was, you know, he was the same. 
I think it's trying to show the impact beyond just the immediate people being sent to die, but I'm not entirely sure myself. I think he, I think he's humanizing the death that we we've seen death all around, but it's just another uni, young man in uniform. It's almost yeah. like this is a this is a someone that we've got to know and we can relate to. We haven't really got to know them, have we? That's, perhaps that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think again that's by design. You know, I don't think I don't think you're really meant to get into this in any character sense. And but that, but that's it. 1917 throws you into the horrors of Warhead first in much the same way. It's done in a very like playing a video game kind of style. But it has the narrative thrust to it. But it draws you in and you you feel the tension and you really sit with the horrors of war firsthand at times in that film. And it is is harrowing in places in the way that war should be whereas dunkirk never does that well i i I, I disagree with you slightly there so i i I take your point generally i agree with you but i think where it really works is in the the scenes when they're on the ships and the ships are sinking and the ships are falling on top of people i think they're really effective scenes that you know you feel the claustrophobia of it i want i noticed that it was when they you know when they they'd been on the boat having their tea and jam and uh, that's, that ship gets torpedoed and as it's sinking, it's falling on top of them. Uh, what I realised was that we were, we were filming, uh, the camera position was at the water's surface. So we weren't looking from above. It was, it was that drowning rat's eye view. Mm. I think they've done a really good job of capturing that water level fear mm. that you're about to go under and there's nothing you can do about it. I, I think a point in this film's favor as well on this front is the music which Mm. once again is a real a real technical exercise from Hans Zimmer and Christopher Mm. Nolan you know it's not so much about write some great music that we'll want to listen to it's like what clever thing can we come up with to play around with this time now I, I know from talking to both of you in the past that this really fucked you off when you went to see the film for the first time gareth is that something you warmed up to on your uh repeat viewing or i i, I really like this the, the well again we talked about the sound mix didn't we and the the fact that the score seems to it seems to be a combination of incidental noises like the you know the sound of the planes coming over and and then it, it I don't know, it's almost like a hybrid of that sound effect with music. And I think it's very well executed. I think it's very well done. I guess I, I, I like the concept in theory. I found the music very overbearing, generally. Uh, like it's, it's, well, I mean that, it's overscored, I guess. That's the point. But that is the point. I mean, that, mm. that what I was saying with the kind of technical thing, I, I, I think I might be speaking out of turn here, but it certainly has the hallmarks of it. I think the music is what's called a, a shepherd tone. Uh, which is essentially an audio illusion. It's the you know the equivalent of an optical illusion, but with sound. Which is this essentially you can create a, a noise that sounds like it is rising in pitch mm. or lowering in pitch eternally, because you kind of layer multiple sounds over the top of them. one is rising you bring one in a bit lower at the same time and then you know fade it down and you if i don't know if that makes any sense but basically it sounds like it's going it does make sense and i know exactly what you're talking about because i remember that i remember thinking god this has been building to a fever pitch for 25 minutes and i think i'm gonna burst yeah 
I don't know if any of this for sure. I'm going purely off of watching the film and what I think they did, but it, it sounds like Christopher Nolan spoke to Hans Zimmer, said, what can we do that will be unbearably tense for a prolonged period? He went, well, there's this audible illusion that we can create some music with that will just put people on edge and create this kind of overbearing sense of stress. And and it really, you know, it, it takes me out of the film on one level. I'm very aware of the music and I'm like, oh my God, that's really getting to me. I think it's a really remarkable achievement, to be honest, the music in this film. I think it does I don't know. wonders I don't know if it. I got that sense of tension or anything. It, I just, it was more just like, I felt it like stresses me I out. wish the music would stop telling me how to feel so I could just appreciate <laughs> this song, like on a more gritty... Yeah. I suppose there is an element of a good score should you not notice a good score, and you well, certainly notice this. I don't know. I, I've heard that being said before, but I don't know where it comes from. Yeah, and I completely I'm not disagree with it. about it either. <laughs> I think, I, I, but I think that Hans Zimmer's. I, I'm not a person who notices scores. You know, I, I, it's not really my thing. But, but certainly with Hans Zimmer and and the, these Nolan films, it, it jumps out as a character to me, and I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I I'm on board with that. I think one one of the things I wanted to talk about with this film was this sense of survivor's guilt that we get at the end. I think how how, how we process grief is a very under underlooked element in a lot of films. You know, people suffer all this death and suffering and they just move on, you know. I, I love the scene at the very end when they're in the train and he's just so filled and sh- filled with shame. We've let you all down. All we did was survive. And of course yeah. and of course, you know, the, the whole thing was spun as a as a great victory which was propaganda, you know. It was undoubtedly a military success, but it was a military success that came at the end of a huge failure. And he knew that. That soldier knew that. But it was good to see that. I think that is something that could be explored a lot more in war films. You know, obviously. Well, that that is my favourite scene in the film, I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo your thoughts. Well, I, I, I remember the first time I watched that, that bit jumped out at me. Not necessarily in a kind of like, oh, this is a good exploration of uh, this human human emotion or anything. Because obviously we don't look at it in any sense. But it was more, that was the only bit in the entire film that made me go, ah, do you know what? I'm, that's making me look at this in a different way. I'd never thought of that in that way. Because again, my my education of this period of history is, you know, when you're 14, you do GCSEs or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, something, Dunkirk, D-Day, uh, Yalta conference, I don't know, something like that. So it's like, that's that's it. And it's... Steady on. So to have that kind of secondary element of like, you know, actually, that was a total fuck up. And they felt, you know, they'd fucked up and they had to be rescued. You know, if you're being rescued, mm. that's not, you haven't done your job right, have you, I suppose, in that, in that sense. Correct, yeah. uh, and that was nice. I, it was nice to get a different perspective on that that I had never thought of myself. I mean, to be honest, I'll, I'll reiterate what I said at the start. I, I like Dunkirk. I think it's a good film, but I expect so much more from Christopher Nolan. And were it not for The Dark Knight Rises, which is this weird blemish in his career, I would say this is his worst film by a significant margin, to be honest. Well, I think, um, as I said at the beginning, I preferred it on the second watch to the first watch. But I. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing for the film because the reason I enjoyed it more was my expectations were lower because I'd already seen it. So it suffers, uh, like your comparison with 1917 is instructive. It, it really suffers from not having that real narrative thread, from from not really having a story. It's 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 an immersion in the characters and their 
their desperation and their fear and it works on that level mm. but i do think it's missing something it, it's missing it's yeah. missing a mission it's missing those two lads trying to get that that mm. that bit of paper yeah. to the front yeah. line you know yeah no i completely agree and it's obviously by design but i just think it's mm. perhaps a failed <laughs> Uh, experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. It sets out, it, it does what it sets out to do. Yeah. But that isn't necessarily justification enough. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, I give it a 7 out of 10, solid. Well, I, get, I give it an 8 out of 10. I, I do enjoy the film on its own terms, definitely. Yeah, I mean, uh, I gave it a 6 for, for the reasons we've spoken of. I so, are you ready for the results, Alan? <laughs> <laughs> what Of what? Have we had tests? Christopher Nolan list. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Go oh, on, my God. Because yeah, he was, of course, at number three. But unfortunately, bumping The Dark Knight Rises down, uh, that's bumped him down from an 8.1 out of 10 to an 8 out of 10. So he's now joint uh, joint fourth place with uh, James Cameron and Quentin Tarantino. They are all sharing fourth place with an average rating of 8 out of 10. Of course, uh, when I finally get round to watching Piranha Part 2, The Spawning, that may uh, <laughs> change. <laughs> so why don't, you two, um, why don't you two sum up the overall Christopher Nolan experience then, having watched the whole thing over the last few weeks? Cold, emotionless. Mm-hmm. Technically spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, like, spectacular isn't the right word. Cause no, te- technically, like, I want to... Well, awesome. In in the truest sense of the word, you know, mm. it, it, it it is humbling to um, take in what some of these films manage to achieve on a on a technical level and a writing level. And do you think that because often when when people, you know, I suppose James Cameron's another good example. You know, they they advance the craft of filmmaking, and sometimes the films they make might not be wonderful, but they you know they change the environment and. Other people can yeah. do things as Robert a result. Do you, do you think he's had an, <laughs> that sort of impact? I, I very much so, very much so. Although I, I think he's put more of a an effort into um, perhaps keeping things as they are. You know, I think Christopher Nolan is perhaps the biggest, most outspoken advocate for filming on film stock. He's done a hell of a lot to save uh, i think kodak and keep them in business so they can keep producing film stock so he mm. and quentin tarantino can keep filming stuff on film but sol innovation doesn't have to be um you know i'm not talking about technical innovation necessarily i'm talking about innovation in in the the, the storytelling in the, the the language of film if that's not too pretentious like I sort of said uh, last week, this holistic approach to filmmaking where everything matters, everything is part of the same thing. I really like that because I think it's something that gets missed very often, particularly in bigger studio releases. You get a little indie film, a little auteur making something that's going to be more likely. To do it on this scale is something you just don't see that often. So even if I find his stories unemotional and, and kind of simple on that level... Uh, the way they're they're formed is impeccable most of the time. Well, uh, absolutely. That that's something that people say glowingly when talking about David Fincher, who is one of yeah. the few people that we perhaps could still get a director season out of on this podcast. Thinking about it, but that one of the few one of the things people say about him is that he is a, a director who knows every aspect of the craft to the point that he could do it himself. And that's very rare that, you know, you have a director who understands the craft of costume design, 
lighting or whatever to such a degree that and i i think it makes a world of difference and you know i would say christopher nolan is most likely that same kind of director mm. i i i would argue in fact that he and fincher have quite a similar vibe about what they're doing in a lot yeah. of ways well i think for me the for me the one main ingredient that is missing from his work is emotional value and mm. you know if you find that in interstellar then that's why you love it I didn't because whatever it was that he's putting in there didn't touch me. I think he would benefit from teaming up with a writer who can put that into yeah. his work for him because he can't do it. He's demonstrated quite clearly mm. that he can't do it. So, Nolan, done. If and when Tenet ever comes out, we shall do a diminisode about it. Yeah, head over to patreon.com forward slash dimreturns. For all our Diminisodes covering random bits and pieces and, and new releases, there haven't been any of those in a while, so we've been yeah. doing <laughs> other stuff. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff on there. I'm, I'm working on something now that's quite interesting that'll be out soon, hopefully. And Tell us what director you want us to cover on patreon.com forward slash dimreturns. One dollar. One dollar, one dollar, one dollar.